Welcome to the FDF podcast, passionate about food and drink. Hello and welcome to this Food and Drink Federation podcast. I'm Tim Rycroft, Chief Operating Officer here at the FDF, and I'm joined as so often by my boss and friend, Ian Wright, Chief Executive of the FDF. Hello, Ian, and happy Trafalgar Day. Uh, well, it, it seems to me rather appropriate, particularly in the light of uh, some of the rhetoric we heard in the House of Commons the other day. The government appears to feel that it has scored a major victory over a, a European hegemony, and uh, that, that's certainly the tone that we, we are getting from the government. Uh, and indeed, I'm some questions today. We had um, we've had some quite extraordinary theatre over Brexit really since Friday of last week, and that has continued each day. With somebody described it as the, the slowest motion tennis match in history, as uh, each side competed to say how open or not their door was, but that the other side had to be the ones who walked through the small aperture. This is all very frustrating and confusing and. In some ways, of course, demoralizing for business, this being the fourth time that many of them will have prepared for a no-deal Brexit outcome. What I thought would be interesting would be to try and get your views a little on, on kind of what lies behind the theatrics. What what if, if we try to be undistracted by um, the choreography around the negotiations, which I think we all expected would play out at this point of the year. What do you think are the kind of uh nonetheless the realities that stand out? Uh, as business looks at the situation now, here we are um, getting late into October uh, and not very long left until the end of transition. Well, I think the political realities for the participants, whether it be for the European Union and its officials, or the member states and their officials and leaders, or for the UK government, are probably slightly different in each case. So I think we need to look at this through a different framework. I think we have to think of there being the EU and its officials at the Brussels level. There's the member states and their officials and leaders who each have their own agenda. And it's different as from Macron to Merkel and others, uh, and in particular for Ireland. And then the, the UK government. And I think we also have to remember that there are two separate negotiations going on here. There's one between at least the theoretically between Barnier and Frost on the EU and one between uh, Michael Gove and Sefovich, the commissioner on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it's important to remember in the last case that whatever happens, there will be some form of process laid down as a consequence of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So those different parties have different interests in all of this. I think for the European Union, uh, for the President of the Commission and for Barnier, there is a real need to be seen to have maintained the negotiating mandate, but also in the words of Chancellor Merkel, to have shown flexibility. And let's not forget that Merkel is in charge of the EU as uh, President of the Council for the next three or four months until January. And it's helpful to the UK's cause, I think, to have the big dog of Germany in charge of the EU at this point, um, because it does mean that there are that the relationship, the key relationship in the EU, which is between Germany and France, is being had actually at the top level. It's not being refracted through a, a, a smaller country presidency. So I think that's important. And I think Merkel wants a deal. I think Macron, for all sorts of traditional reasons, 
has to be seen to be being tough. And I think he genuinely wants to preserve the integrity of the European Union. But I don't think either of those are insuperable obstacles to a deal. Similarly, I think the Commission has to be seen to have protected the wider interests of the 27. But again, and Barnier is, I think, quite a difficult man. Uh, I think he's an honourable negotiator, but I think he has one eye on his place in history here as the person who did or didn't negotiate this or did or didn't give away uh, too much to the UK. Uh, and he is worried, understandably, that this sets a, a template for anyone else who ever wants to leave the EU. And so his negotiation is is always going to be with with uh, a, a kind of particular focus on the bill to be paid by Europe over many decades. Meanwhile, the, the, the UK, it's not entirely clear to me what quite what the point of some of these theatrics is, except that I think it shows Prime Minister Johnson uh, hanging tough. It shows that he has, uh, he will, his patience is not inexhaustible. I mean, I'm struck by the, the close, uh, the close affiliation between the negotiation with Andy Burnham and the negotiation with the EU. So with Andy Burnham, the, the government appeared, the mayor of Manchester appeared to be negotiating, but actually didn't move very far. And Burnham continually pushed them. And eventually uh, the government walked away and imposed its own settlement. Now, the consequences of that we don't know yet, but it hasn't done a huge amount for relationships between central government and the various mayors around the country. And I don't know that it will yet be seen to have worked. But the same playbook is being used in the uh, negotiations with, with the EU on the deal with the EU. It's different, I think, on the negotiation with the Commission on Ireland, where I think much more flexibility is being shown on both sides. Is there a danger that all of this leads business to focus too much on the conclusion or not of a free trade agreement with the EU? What are the reasons to celebrate that? What are the reasons still to fear it? Well, I think I think it is important that we don't allow the media coverage or the government's agenda, if there is a deal to say, thank goodness that's it and we can all move on, because that's only one part of the story. The truth is that on the 31st of December at 2300 hours, we are going to face all sorts of new and onerous checks and bureaucracy, whichever of the four routes is being essayed. So there are four separate parts to this. There's EU to UK, there's UK to EU. There's GB to NI and there's NI to GB. And each of those, if you've been trading through those routes up until 2300 hours on the uh, 31st of December, then you've been used to a relatively similar set of processes with no friction. From that time, there will be four separate processes and they'll all involve friction. And it's important to understand that whether we get a deal, whether we have tariffs or not, is simply an addition to those relatively onerous and new burdens. So in terms of advice to food and drink manufacturers at this time, what are the what are the one, two or three really important things that they need to be doing with 10 weeks to go uh, that will make most difference to how they're able to trade after the 1st of January? Well, I think it, whichever one of those routes they, they uh, focus on, and it may be that they use all of those routes or that are more important than others. Uh, I think they need to be absolutely clear 
on the detail of the checks that are going to be required and the pre-registrations that are going to be needed in order to ship goods in whichever direction they wish. And I think if they think that the uh, future around the 31st of December is too opaque for them, that they simply can't make judgments yet with the available information, and I think that's an important point, there is, there is a lot of uncertainty probably more uncertainty surrounding to and from Northern Ireland than there is to and from the EU, but, but there are bits of the EU process which are extremely uncertain. I think if they feel there is too much uncertainty, in addition to being ready, very clear on each of the processes as they become uh, published and as people are aware of what they will involve, if there is too much uncertainty, then businesses need to make some kind of pretty clear disposition about what they will do about their trade into that uncertainty. And that might mean moving goods either across to the EU or sales subsequently. It might mean moving goods across to Northern Ireland, similarly, or it might mean bringing ingredients or other goods across either from Northern Ireland or the EU. Or, sadly, it might mean telling customers either in the EU or in Ireland that they're going to not be able to trade for a period and that they must find other suppliers. I think that's a last resort. But certainly we know a dozen of our businesses who've already done that in Northern Ireland. They've either shipped goods there and are ready to sell out of a Northern Ireland base or they've, they've told customers that they won't be able to do so. Uh, and I think it's important to be very clear and very unsentimental, cold-eyed, if you will, about the processes. You need to know about the processes. You need to have rehearsed them. And you need to have decided uh, tactically what you would do in relation to uncertainty. Now, the junior cabinet office minister, Lord Agnew, came in for quite a lot of criticism from the industry, not least indeed from me, uh, when he said in front of the Treasury Select Committee that traders have displayed a head-in-the-sand attitude towards preparation, even though that may well have been an, un an unhelpful characterisation. What is your assessment of the state of readiness for all the changes that we know will come on the 1st of January? Well, I think Lord Agnew's comments were terribly ill-advised. I think he, in fact, is the one with his head in the sand, thereby, as they say, exposing his thinking parts. But I also think that it's important to note that that is probably the start of a, uh, an attempt by the government to at least indicate that some of the delays, some of the failures to supply, some of the difficulties which are about to ensue may be the result of a failure of preparedness on the part of what they describe as traders. Now, we'll see if that takes wing or whether interventions like yours on Twitter just make them think that that's possibly an unwise course of action. Um, I, I do think the levels of readiness vary wildly between each of the four routes. Um, I think most big regular traders, either with um, either into the EU or from the EU, are pretty well aware of the nature of the trading relationship. Obviously, they don't yet know whether the tariffs or not, and that's quite a big variable for some, but not for others. Um, and it may be, I think tariffs tend to be offer a binary choice, either it's worth continuing to trade or it isn't. It isn't a marginal issue for many people. So I think they've made their contingency plans for tariffs or not tariffs. And I think big traders know what they're doing. They may not know how it will work, 
and they may not be certain that there will be enough vets to do animal health certificates or enough customs agents or whatever it is. But I think there will be, uh, there is a, a, a significant level of readiness amongst regular traders. The difficulty though, and this is what you've pointed out on a regular basis, is you can be as ready as you like, but if the person in front of you, in the van in front of you isn't, you're going to be delayed. As relates out to the uh, EU, some of the provisions the UK is putting in place in Kent may help that because you're going to basically have to have your paperwork and show it at this 7,000 person uh, vehicle lorry park in Kent before you're allowed down further towards Dover. If things go reasonably well, that should work as a, as a real safety valve that there aren't people at the front of the queue who have to be turned around with lots of time wasting. On the other side of the channel about exactly what the state of readiness is, I was talking uh, this morning to a senior UK official who's in charge of the process of, um, of helping educate European traders on processes. And uh, she was saying that the state of readiness varies quite widely between different sectors in different countries. So we're trying to dig under that at the moment and get a bit of an understanding of whether that is going to be a problem. I think there's far less readiness as relates to Northern Ireland. I think there are thousands of people out there who trade relatively regular, regularly, though not perhaps frequently, with Northern Ireland, who have no idea that the thing is going to change come the 31st of December. And I do think, and I think this is quite concerning, I really don't know that the necessary preparation would be made either at Cairn Ryan or Stranraer in Scotland, or at the Welsh ports, or at the North Northern England ports that face into Northern Ireland, I'm not at all sure that the provisions that have been put in place in those are enough to deal with potential chaos. And that's very interesting because one of the very striking things about Michael Gerard's statement to the House of Commons was that while he was extremely downbeat about the free trade agreement negotiations, he was much more upbeat about the withdrawal agreement. And we did see small signs of progress even last week with the issue of an EU office in Northern Ireland seemingly now resolved through compromise. Do you think at least in terms of the institutional agreement about Northern Ireland protocol common how it operates, that there is some reason for optimism there? Yes, I do. I think I think both sides have a stake in their success. Nobody can imagine what would happen in Northern Ireland if there is no agreement or if there is chaos or if there are shortages on the shelves. The situation there is very febrile still, and everybody has, uh, I think, everybody engaged in these negotiations has an absolute commitment to the extensioning and extending and deepening the peace process so that it becomes generationally uh, rooted in Northern Ireland's polity, in its people, and in its, and you know, it's only 23 years since the deal was done. Um, it's not yet something which it's a generation has grown up not knowing what the troubles could look like, but it isn't the majority of the population yet. And I think it's only when that happens that you can't really go back. So there's also the concern that while the violence has largely, not completely, but largely gone away, the men of violence, the men and women of violence, have simply transmogrified into criminal gangs. Um, and so any opportunity to smuggle goods across the border, and don't forget the Northern Ireland Republic border is the most smuggled in Europe, um, any opportunity to make a trade that's illegal and make a profit through smuggling might be taken. I think that's the concern that people 
have about not getting very clear arrangements in place? Well, I was hoping to leave Brexit on a positive note, but we've managed to steer us down a, a, a border high road there. I'm going to move on to talk about the other big issue which continues to dominate our environment here at home, at least COVID, and particularly the impact on hospitality, which has once again come massively into the spotlight in recent days. The increasing case rates and, and more parts of the country moving into increasingly restrictive measures, but also in particular this disparity about help for businesses that are shut down, but no help for the businesses that supply them. Now, as we sit here in central London, we're surrounded by uh, closed hospitality venues, uh, which is a you know, very depressing sight to walk past. What's your assessment as to where this issue is going? I'm quite downbeat about the prospects for hospitality in central London. Uh, I was listening to some figures from UK Hospitality and Kay Nichols today. She was saying that 75% uh, of hospitality across the country is trading unprofitably. Uh, that by and large, across the board, across the whole of the UK, tier one is 10% down on this time last year. Hospitality in tier two is 60% down. And hospitality in tier three is 85% down. Now, that is a massive hit. And she also said that the change um, between Tier 1 and Tier 2 for London last weekend had resulted in this week's figures being lower than 15% of what they were last week. Now, that is just catastrophically bad. And if you put that together with the end of the furlough scheme on uh, the 1st of November, what you get is a recipe for vast numbers, half a million people across the country being made redundant pretty much instantly. Because the scheme that, that supports them in tier three, the job retention scheme, simply doesn't work uh, because it is, unless you are closed. Because you simply haven't got, even though the, the, the government will guarantee uh, two thirds of the income, that's because the scheme that the government has put in place, the job support scheme, simply doesn't work if you are making no money, if you're open and making no money. If you're closed, then it does probably work. But if you're open and making no money, you simply can't access the funds because you need to pay a third of the wages and you need to guarantee a certain number of hours. And that is not something that businesses in tier two or in many in tier three that remain open can do and and part of the problem is here that you've taken away the vast bulk of the customer base so if you can't go into a restaurant a bar or a hospitality outlet and meet with somebody who is not effectively a relative or your partner you've lost a huge amount of the of the available customer base and although one sort of understands this from a social mixing point of view it is devastating for the economy. And, you know, I have to say my personal view, not the view of the FDF, uh, but my personal view is that the decision to allow, to prioritize university uh, education over hospitality and the economy, I think is entirely wrong. I think it has driven numbers up massively in places where that wasn't necessary. And I realize that this is difficult for students but as far as I can understand, very, very few students are actually being taught face-to-face -face anyway, and therefore it could all have been done remotely. And I realise how disruptive that is, 
for those students, but we could have postponed their positions for a year, we could have paid their grants. That would have been a much lower hit to the economy than what we're now seeing. And, and I've heard estimates which are terrifying that three quarters of the pubs and bars that close in central London as a consequence of tier two status will never reopen. Well, that is to some degree the end of the London nighttime economy. It's the end of sensible tourism in London. And I think that is absurdly short-sighted and a major mistake by this government. And it's very bad for food manufacturers because that outlet, that part of our supply chain, that set of customers could disappear forever. And what that does, it doesn't actually mean that the total amount of food or drink that we produce will decline because the last lockdown suggested that doesn't happen. But it does mean that we will ever more be concentrated into the retail chain and in the hands of fewer and fewer retailers. And it concentrates the customer base and obviates competition. Which leads to reduced choice. Reduced choice and also reduced freedom of opportunity for both manufacturers and workers because there are fewer there are fewer literally fewer choices about where to put your dollar as it were and, and i think that is also to be regretted and it is the it is the result of a short-sighted by the government in terms of which groups it prioritized so we need to wrap up in a moment um i've sought in vain to find sources of good cheer uh so i'm just going to invite you to tell me something this week that has cheered you up or at least the thing that's keeping you going in this challenging time. Uh, well, actually, I'm more optimistic. I know it doesn't sound like that, but I'm more optimistic going forward. So, first of all, I'm very encouraged to note, however much the government doesn't appear to want to take note of the evidence, that the infection rates in a number of the Tier 2 locations, where they've been going on for some weeks, have come down quite sharply. So, in our own area, we both live in the East Midlands, the Nottingham infection rates are down markedly week on week um, and going in the right direction. Because all the students have had it. Because all the students have caught it, yeah. Um, and also the rates in the northeast, which have been locked up for a lot longer, are also coming down sharply. Now, what isn't happening, and it's clearly a, a function of the different wave in which this is playing out, different way in which this second wave is playing out, is that hospital admissions are lagging those infection rates and also now continuing to grow and that i think is simply the way that the demographic impact of this is changing i was listening to the director of hospitals in nottingham the other last night i think or the night before saying that he's very confident uh, that he knows how the the curve will look over the next uh, three or four weeks he's very confident that he doesn't need more hospital beds and he's extremely clear that he doesn't want Nottingham to go to tier three because of the economic impact and some of the health impacts that he can see stored up. The second thing is, and we're involved in this in FDF, um, we are seeing uh, the new technologies for testing now being rolled out um, in pilot form across the UK. They're being used in airports from this week. They're being used in schools, they're being used in hospitals, and they're about to be used in some food factories. And these are 15 minute tests they're available in much greater numbers and they're potentially much, much cheaper. 15 minute turnaround test. Takes you 15 minutes from the time you put your swab in the gob, the swab in your gob to the point when you know the result. And that, and there are also other tests. There's a 
there's a, a finger test where you prick your finger and, and get some blood and there are a couple of other tests as well they're all being tried maybe they won't all work but some of them are working clearly at, at higher rates than the pcr tests and they're much quicker much more available i think if that comes out then at least you can move back in the direction of the normal life and i i actually do myself believe that the government will be able to hit its million test a day target by the end of november and probably earlier and i think that actually is the route back to normal life and then a little further away but not quite as far i think as everybody has thought there is this question of the of the vaccine and it's clear for example that the chinese vaccine is going to be available in early mid-december now that's going to put huge pressure on the Oxford vaccine and the UK to be up there with them. Uh, otherwise, businesses are going to start buying the vaccine from China. And I think that's a, a really positive uh, development. So I can see, as the Prime Minister said on a call I was on with him yesterday, that Christmas will be much better than the current position and the new year and the spring of the new year will be even better still. That's not much comfort if you've been made redundant as a consequence of the government's decision to move London into Tier 3 or Manchester in Tier 3 uh, this week. And I think that is, those are going to prove to have been serious mistakes. But I do think that the, the medium term is much, much more encouraging. Ian, on that note, we're going to end it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.